All right, church, well, um, we are, as Will mentioned earlier, starting a new series um, going through the parables of Jesus. And so we've identified a handful of parables that we will be walking through together as a church um, over the summer months. And this morning, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. For some of you, I believe this will be a familiar parable. Um, it is one of the shorter ones, and it's unique um, in, in a number of different ways. And so we'll, we'll see some of those as we go throughout. Um, I'm going to read it for us in its entirety, and then we'll just dive right in, okay? Luke 18, 9 to 14. The words will be on the screen. also encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to, to pull it out. This is God's Word. It's what it says. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. My wife and I, my family, we have two dogs. Don't ask me why. I don't know why. We have two dogs, and they're similar in a number of different ways, and they're, they're different in a variety of different ways as well. One of the ways that they are different is, like any normal dogs, they like food, right? They like to be rewarded occasionally, all right? Um, and uh, if one dog, if I were to have a treat in my hand and hold it out, extend it to the dog, and offer the treat to the dog, she will gingerly, graciously, softly, slowly receive that treat into her mouth. The other dog is a different story. The other dog has a, a much bigger face, a much larger jaw, and much sharper teeth. And if I were to extend the exact same treat in his direction, almost at, from any point of the house, no matter how far away I am, he will, with all of his force, throw himself towards me in that treat and have zero concern for my hand, right? He will just grab the treat out of my hand and begin to enjoy the treat. Two totally different experiences. Obviously, there is one of those dogs that I prefer to reward more frequently than the other. I'm sure you can understand why. Two totally different dogs, two totally different experiences. They both want to receive the same thing. One of them does it the right way. He who has ears, 
let them hear. As Will mentioned, we are walking through a series of parables. See, at the very beginning of our verse, verse 9, it says, He also told this parable. Isn't it remarkable to think that Jesus, though he lived some 2,000 years ago, is still very much relevant today? In fact, I would be willing to wager there's the Arts Fest going on downtown this weekend. I'd be willing to wager if after church you and whoever you came with went downtown and just randomly bumped into a handful of strangers and asked them what they thought about Jesus, I would be willing to wager that for the vast majority of those people, you will not get blank stares as if they don't know who you're talking about, like they've never heard the name before. Now, now in some parts of the world, to be sure, that may be the experience, but in many parts of the world, that would not be the experience. People would have some opinion on Jesus. They would have some understanding of who Jesus is. Now, we know Jesus, as we read through the Bible, was a, a miracle worker. But he was also, a significant part of his ministry was also that of teaching. He was known as an incredibly gifted communicator. The type that could capture the attention of thousands just by saying a few words. People immediately would be turned into what this man had to say. And one of Jesus' favorite forms of teaching was simply telling Stories, short, fictional stories. He would tell these stories that they might stick in people's brains. Usually the stories involved memorable characters. Oftentimes, they were dealing with very ordinary things. Farming, building, eating. In today's case, Worshiping, just common, ordinary tasks. He didn't just tell them to tell them, however. He didn't just create these stories just to tell a good story. He told them to teach a point. Each of the stories had a point. And, and we know that the, there's a lot of power in telling stories, right? There's something powerful about a story. I can remember when my kids were little and it would be hard to get them to go to sleep Oftentimes, the nights would end with me in a bed, and I would create this fictional world with these fictional characters, and I would tell them one story after another, one night after another. And all it would take for me when they're bouncing off the walls, refusing to cooperate and go to bed, all it would take from me in that moment is to utter one simple line. Once upon a time. And immediately, their heads would turn around, their eyes would enlarge in and their attention would be mine. There is power in telling stories. Jesus understood this. Now, he told specifically, it says here in 9, a parable. It's, parable is a type of a story. It's a, it's a type of a story. It's one of Jesus' favorite devices in teaching really significant things. This is what a parable is. It's a short metaphorical story which teaches us about the kingdom of God. 
These stories, as Jesus would tell the parables, they would, they would peel back, sort of open a window and allow others to look into the kingdom of God and usually see one of two things. Either A, how the kingdom works, or B, what we see here today, how one enters the kingdom. Usually the parables had to do with one of those two things. The other thing that's important for us as we start this study on the parables to realize is the parables were puzzling. That they were intended as Jesus told them to sort of get under people's skin. Many can appreciate the power of a, of a good story or illustration in preaching. Oftentimes people might even say, they've said to me, why don't you tell more stories? And one of the reasons we like them in preaching is because stories or illustrations can help, they can help make things clear. However, parables are not like that. Their meaning, we'll discover as we go throughout the series, is almost never clear and obvious. As we read them, we'll see that they almost feel more like riddles, leave us scratching our head, thinking to ourselves, what in the world is he talking about? Even just a few minutes ago, I was sitting there thinking to myself, as I'm preparing to preach this message, I feel like I've only taken this parable, maybe focused on one layer of meaning. And as I'm sitting there think, worshiping, I'm thinking there are so many different layers to this one simple story. This is one of the reasons why Jesus would use parables. So that people could see, but not really see. So people could hear but not really here. In fact, he tells a parable about why he tells parables, and that's what he says. He does this in order to teach crucial truths about the kingdom of God. Jesus, this is his grace, would plant a story in their minds, the people's minds, that they might be puzzled, that they might not forget, a story that they would return to over and over again, like a seed sort of planted in their minds that grows over time. Or you could also liken them to, to a time bomb that is planted in their soul, waiting for the Spirit of God for it to be detonated. For those who are believers, parables had an illuminating effect. For those who are unbelievers, parables often, we'll see, had an irritating effect. These parables would force Jesus' listeners to do just that, listen and to think. And as they considered Jesus, they would consider what it would mean to follow him. Our prayer is that over the next couple of weeks, that as we do this, that our church would engage in the exact same practice. That as we discover and sort of rediscover these stories, we would do the exact same thing. That our ears would be open. That we would listen and that we would think. That the story that we just read and that we'll talk about for the next couple of minutes, that as we go throughout our week, that this story would stay with us. What did he mean? by that. The other reality about these stories is not just are they puzzling, but the parables are also confrontational. They're confrontational. These are fictional stories that Jesus told, and oftentimes what we'll see, what I think Jesus understood, is that oftentimes it was easier for the listeners to see truths and be confronted about truths in their own lives when they were brought into the story that involved other people. I don't know if you can relate to that as well. Sometimes it's easier for us to be confronted with difficult truths when we're not the main characters. 
would love for us as a church, as we walk through this series, to be open to what God has to say to us. That we would be willing to be confronted in our souls and to consider our own pursuit of Jesus. If that is what Jesus wanted them to accomplish in his disciples' hearts and lives, I think it's also what he wants to accomplish in us as his people. We see at the beginning of this passage that Jesus told, this is a unique feature of this parable. He, he says specifically who his audience is. He says he told a parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is who he's speaking to, who he's speaking about. Jesus could have just said, stop trusting in yourselves and treating others this way. He could have just gotten right down to it, but he didn't. And his grace told a story. He told a story. And with this story, what I believe one of the big aims of this message is, one of the big aims of this story is, is to show us this remarkable news that God justifies Sinners like you and me. That God has mercy on sinful people who deserve no mercy. When it comes right down to it, this parable shows us that God justifies the ungodly. Now to see this, we'll sort of make three movements throughout the text. The first thing is, I'll invite you to consider with me the who of the story. We'll look at the who, the what, and the how. First, the who. Who are these characters, these two individuals that he introduces into the parable? And verse 10 says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. This is a scene that his listeners would have easily related to. There were two daily services in the temple in Jerusalem. One in the early morning, the other took place around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This likely would be the second service that Jesus and that other people would be imagining as the story is being told. His audience would have been familiar with this setting. They would have also been familiar with these two men. These two characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector, are familiar people. And they would have, as the story is being told, generated within the audience immediate reactions in sort of two different directions. A Pharisee and a tax collector couldn't be further apart from one another. Two men, we're told, are heading up to the temple. The first was a Pharisee. If you want to think about what was going on in the, the minds of the, the listeners of the story as Jesus told it, when they heard the word Pharisee, the first thing they probably thought of is, here's an individual who is beloved, who is revered, who is admired. That's where their minds would have gone. This individual would have had a distinctive dress. He belonged to a tradition of Judaism that believed people ought to honor God in very public ways. He would have been a conservative through and through. Tremendous respect for the law of God. Found himself reading, meditating, memorizing God's word day and night. This was a student and a teacher of this word. In the Bible, we think of individuals like Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Paul, who we just learned about last week, before his conversion, he was a Pharisee. These are respectable people that demonstrated an extraordinary devotion to God. Old Testament would have called people to fast 
on the day of atonement Pharisees were to multiply it twice a day and his giving he says I've given everything amazing devotion to God he would have been deeply committed to the word here's the deal church it's what I want you to think about if our church was made up this is what these people would be thinking in themselves if there were just more Pharisees among us we would be okay if there were more people like this individual among us we would be okay they would give above and beyond they would be remarkably devoted to God and their fasting they would live lives free of public sin these would be remarkable individuals in fact odds are people would say well as a Pharisee wants to join our congregation let's put them on the fast track to membership just move right along all right we need more of them among us that's what they would be thinking remarkable life when you think of I'm, I'm hesitant as we walk through this to, to give a, a modern day parallel to what a Pharisee is because the truth, of, the truth of it is each one of us as we think about who would fall into that category the names the profiles the positions the type of person likely is going to be very different so as you think about in our world in your life who would fall into that category remarkable individual the type of person you want your kids to grow up and be like that's exactly what's going through their minds as they're hearing this story that's what they're thinking about this Pharisee the other character is not beloved like the Pharisee this character is despised he's a tax collector now for us we might think IRS this is not the direction we would think this is this is far far worse all right this is an employee of the Roman government his entire livelihood depends on collecting taxes from the people from his own people and collecting not just the taxes but above and beyond what he's supposed to collect so that he can make a living so that he can gain a wealth and so that he can pad his pockets this is an individual who is willing and readily betraying his own people the Pharisee himself tells us what others would think about him an extortioner he's unjust taking more than he earned and if he, he was an extortioner who was padding his pockets and lived this kind of wealth he was likely also able to afford living a life of adultery this man walks into church and can't even lift his eyes up to heaven it's probably the first time he's been in the temple for years and quite, quite honestly it's very likely he doesn't quite know how to act you can see that from his behavior in their day, you would have put a tax collector, or sorry, a, a, a tax collector in the same sort of category as you would place someone like a prostitute. And here this man is walking into church. Why? Not so sure why he's there. This sinner is completely out of his element. Not sure how to behave. In, in this culture, it would have been common for women to beat their chest, not for men. He is acting completely out of the ordinary, hiding in the shadows. But here he is, standing at a distance, unable to lift his eyes and crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, why did Jesus choose these two men? They would instantly invoke a response and bring about immediate feelings 
in his listeners. One beloved, the other despised. Why these two? It's interesting that for all the differences that they have, there's a few things they share in common. For one, they're both in church. And two, I'd be willing to wager they're both looking for the same thing. So this is who these individuals are. Next question is, what are they after? What do they want? Well, the text itself gives us a couple clues to help us determine what these men are after. Look at verse 9. It says, He told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus, as he's telling this story, discerns that there's some in the crowd who want to receive the right thing in the wrong way. They want it to be righteous. They, they want it to be right with God. But both of them would go about doing that in totally different ways. One was condemnable, the other commendable. Pharisee, he says, he goes on to say, is you know, they, they wanted to justify themselves, treated themselves as though they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The reality is that trusting in self naturally leads to looking at others with contempt. This is the inevitable consequence of self-righteousness. And Jesus is calling it out before he even tells the story. He is speaking to a people who, who their way of making themselves right is found ultimately within themselves. They are self-righteous. Verse 14 tells us, as we think about what it is that they're after, when he tells the story, he, tell, he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house to be justified to his house justified rather than the other. What these men are after is they're, they're after righteousness. They're, they want to be made right with God. They want to be, Jesus says, justified. Now these words righteousness and, and, justi and being justified, it's really the same word in the original language. My response to that person was justified. I was right with that comment that I made. Not doing that thing, that was justifiable. To be justified is to have God's verdict of the final day pronounced on us today. That's ultimately what it means. To be, to be righteous before God, to be made right with God. And both men long for this in God's sight, to be made right. To be, to be justified really is what all of our hearts long for and crave. To be seen as right, to be made right. The, the, the doctrine of justification is a central doctrine of Christianity. Listen how Thomas Watson puts it. Justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous, like a defect in a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of the water of life. 
to have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into this spring is damnable. Justification is a crucial aspect. It's a a critical doctrine of Christianity. And it begins with the understanding that the triune God is the absolute standard for everything that is good. And this absolute standard in all of life is expressed through the Mosaic law in the Old Testament and seen wonderfully and gloriously through the life of Jesus, his character, his love, his holiness. And man, you, me, as creatures of the creator, the triune God, our position before this standard is we stand guilty, condemned, and helpless. Though we're made in his image, the Bible's very clear. We all fall short. No one is good or righteous. Even our best efforts are like that of filthy rags, the Bible says. And Psalm 130 makes it very clear. No one can stand up right before God. All of humanity stands condemned. Disobedience to God's will results in a death penalty. The righteous judge of all the earth is perfectly justified in pronouncing guilty sinners worthy of eternal damnation. So you see, because of that reality, God's good and perfect standard, we don't meet it. Because of that reality, the Pharisee and the tax collector have a significant problem before them. A real problem. How can they be made right before a righteous and holy God. The wonder of this parable is that Jesus made it known that it was possible for God and God alone to justify sinful people like you and me. This parable peels back the wonders of the gospel It is foundational for us. So the next question, the third point, how is it achieved? Think back to the story of the dogs. There is one right way to receive the treat from my hand. One. How do they get it? What are the means? Now, there's a few things, as I said before, that these two individuals share in common. They both come to the same church. They're, in fact, in the same service, likely for the Pharisee. This would be his second time at church today, actually. Okay? They stand slightly apart from the rest of the congregation. Both engage in some private act of prayer or or worship. But of the words that come out of their mouth, as they pray, as they worship, there's only one word that they share in common. And that word is God. Two different men, two very different approaches. And Jesus tells us that only one would walk away justified. What's the Pharisee's approach? Where is he putting all of his chips? 
Well, he's a man of prayer, clearly. And this is a good thing. Prayer is a, a mark of sincere faith, of true spirituality, of, of dependence on God. And he's displaying it right now. He thanks God for all that he is and all that he does. He, he clearly, by listening to his description, lives a disciplined life. He's unlike those around him. He's set apart. He lives a much better life than the company that are, is near him. Those listening to the story would be thinking as they hear it, he is far more like me than the tax collector. Those listening would have been able to see themselves in the life of the Pharisee. That They would have wanted to become like him. What's his approach? What's so staggering about his approach? What's, what's so significant about his prayer is actually if you were to, and Jesus doesn't include this in the parable because he's operating under the assumption that everybody who hears it already knows exactly what a service looks like. And this point of the service, when they would have time to, to, to have personal devotion to God expressed, would have come immediately after the burnt offering. That's what would have been happening at the temple at this point. A, a lamb would have been selected for sacrifice, inspected to ensure that it was without blemish, then bound on the altar and slain. People would stand in silence at this amazing display, th this remarkable scene. They, they would be holding up their hands, oh God in heaven, this sacrifice is for you. It would be a visible, real, symbolic reminder of their need, of their sin, and of what God must do. There must be a substitute because their sin is a real problem. They would have just seen this. And right after witnessing that scene, the Pharisee prays his prayer. And over and over and over again in his prayer, I, 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 I. See, the truth is his prayer sounds not like that of a person who's dependent on grace, but that of someone who's consumed with self. And that's precisely what he is. He just witnessed the sacrifice of an animal reminding him of his inability to atone for sins himself. And yet he's unable to recognize his need for God. He doesn't see a need for forgiveness. He doesn't see a need for mercy. The Pharisee says, I'm justified by what I bring to the table. He can't see his sins. The tax collector, very, very different. Having just witnessed the exact same scene. He comes to God in private devotion. And this man hides in the shadows. His sin is before him so much that he, he can't even look in God's direction hiding in the shadows, beating his chest. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
He's not looking around horizontally to see how his life stacks up to those around him. I don't know about you and me, but that is such a temptation to measure my obedience to Christ based on my neighbor's. To compare my sin with that of the person next to me. It's a real temptation for all of us. He compares himself to the holiness of God, period. And he can't take it. Jesus says, this man, the one hiding in the shadows, the one who doesn't know all the rules in church, he does know one thing. He is a sinner. And because of that, he will go home justified. This would have been completely shocking to the audience. Not what they would have expected. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Church, the truth is, God honors humility. And he justifies sinners. That's the good news of the gospel. This Pharisee was not humble. He saw no need for help, no need for mercy. His justification was in himself. The tax collector comes from a totally different perspective. If you were to keep going and reading throughout the book of, throughout the chapter of 18 in Luke, you'll see that there's a, another story that comes up of the blind man Bartimaeus. Some of us may be familiar, this blind beggar who heard Jesus passing and cried out, oh Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In our language, it's the same word, mercy. But in the original language, it's two different words, two different meanings. The blind beggar Bartimaeus was asking for, for Jesus to have compassion, for him to have pity on him. But here, the tax collector uses a different word, which brings out a totally different meaning. He was asking that the word would be translated to, to appease or to render propitious. What the tax collector was saying was, oh God, atone for my sins. This is the response that the whole scene of the burnt offering would have, would have generated in his heart. He, the recognition that there needed to be a substitute who would bear the consequences of his sin. Oh God, atone for my sins. That he still had need for mercy. Even though the offering was already burnt. It was already given. He was asking himself one simple question. How could that one little lamb possibly atone for all of my heinous sins? And the truth was, he couldn't. It wasn't enough. So he asked God for mercy. <laughs> Find a way, God, to take care of my sins. Well, as we continue reading through Luke's gospel, we know that in just two weeks, like countless lambs before him, Jesus, too, would be examined. He'd be bound to the cross 
and he would be brutally slain. Jesus, he was the Lamb of God. The one that when John the Baptist laid eyes on him said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This sacrifice, Jesus himself on the cross, would be sufficient. Even the sins of the tax collector, the most despised in the world, could be justified. God's grace would be enough. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is God's answer to your problem. He's the answer to my problem. He took on human nature. He lived a sinless life which led to his atoning death and resurrection. And if sinful people like you and me simply call on his name, turn from our sins and, and call on his name, the Bible says, we too will be justified. In fact, that's the only way it's possible. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? You know, it's interesting, just in closing, if you skip ahead to Luke 19, you'll see it. Jesus is traveling through the city of Jericho and comes across another individual. His name was Zacchaeus. He was called a chief tax collector. Maybe Zacchaeus, I don't know, heard this story. Maybe he heard this parable and thought to himself, is there any way for me to be made right? Whatever it takes, climbs the sycamore tree, and Jesus passing underneath sees right into his heart and said, listen, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. He experienced what the tax collector, Zacchaeus ex experienced really what the tax collector experienced parabolically. Real transformation. Salvation, we're told, comes into his house. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus doesn't just welcome sinners into his presence. He also seeks them out. God justifies sinful people like you and me only through Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this truth this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would simply write it on our hearts. Even this week as we go about, Lord, we ask that you would bring it to our attention and help us to remember um, not just our need, Lord, but your holiness, your grace, and your mercy, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.